This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Firminger, and today I am deeply honored to welcome Lorne Cardinal to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Millions of viewers around the world know Lorne as Sergeant Davis Quinton on Corner Gas, the iconic comedy series turned record-breaking movie turned cartoon. And while Corner Gas is a stuff of legend and Davis is an essential part of it all, Davis doesn't even begin to scratch the surface in revealing who Lorne is as an artist and human being. Lorne Cardinal is an actor, a writer, a director, a producer, and a voice actor. He has more than 100 film, television, and stage credits to his name. He recently appeared in Kayak to Klemtu with Tekeb Laney and Sonia Bennett, a performance that earned him the Best Actor Award at the American Indian Film Festival, as well as Kathleen Hepburn's superb and critically acclaimed feature film, Never Steady, Never Still, about a mother in the North navigating Parkinson's and loss. He voices Grandpa Nat in the Peabody Award-winning Molly of Denali, and he's recurring as Nelson Skye, the granddad in the central family in Dick Wolf's FBI Most Wanted for NBC. He also starred in Florian Haberdahl's and Luna Ferguson's mesmerizing short film, Henry's Heart, about a man grappling with love, loss, and identity at the end of his life. Lorna shared the screen with Susan Sarandon, Gary Sinise, Sir Louis Swank, and Al Pacino, and shared the stage at the National Arts Center in Ottawa with 40 established and emerging artists in the first all-Indigenous staging of King Lear. Lear was played by his longtime friend and mentor, August Schellenberg, who was a trailblazing actor himself and the first Indigenous person to graduate from the National Theatre School. Sadly, August passed away in 2013, and late last year, Lauren was the 2020 recipient of the August Schellingbird Award. He's also got an honorary PhD, and I understand that a theater space at the Roxy Theater in Edmonton is currently being constructed in his name. So that's the Lorne Cardinal biography, cobbled together from official biographies and IMDb and Wikipedia. What the biography doesn't tell us is what drives Lorne as an artist, or what challenges he's faced along the way, or what a work like that all-Indigenous production of King Lear on a national stage, a project that Lorne and his brilliant partner, Monique Hurtu, documented in their film, Chasing Lear, means to him personally and to the community as a whole. It doesn't tell us what he thinks about the importance of a kid's show like Molly of Denali, which recently featured an episode where Molly reunites Grandpa Nat with the drum he lost when he was sent to residential school. It doesn't tell us what he wants from his work now and how that's changed since the beginning of his career. So today, I want to talk about all the meat of life, 
that the official biography doesn't tell us. I want us all to get to know this Canadian icon, Mr. Lorne Cardinal. Mr. <laughs> Lorne Cardinal, <laughs> welcome to the YBR Screen Scene Podcast. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you very much, Sabrina. Uh, I also, um, I do want to give a shout out to your dog whose name I did not get uh, during the intro. Jake, who is yeah. stunningly beautiful. Um, He's a and dude. He really is. Uh, yeah. And who really should have his own Instagram account. So <laughs> hopefully I will convince Lauren by the end of this. I think he's uh, liking it. His ears are perked up. So he's, he's taking it in. He likes it. That's good. That's good. He's got fans and he has a yeah. full fan base that he doesn't even know about yet. So Lauren, um, first of all, I offer everybody the chance to give me a rebuttal <laughs> to, <laughs> to anything that I've said in, in my thesis statement. Um, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> all those things did happen. I love to um, hear it. It sounds, uh, when you hear it from the outside, it's like, wow, okay, he's done some things. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, it's fantastic, and I'm still pursuing things that I, I want to do, like work at Stratford, which is one of my bucket list things, and I'm hoping it'll happen this year. I put in the phone call and uh, to Anthony, Anthony Cimolino, the artistic director of Stratford. Uh, I yeah. phoned him up, and I said, hey, Anthony, uh, my name is Lauren Cardinal. And, uh, and he goes, oh, no, we know, and we know your work. And uh, I said, yeah, well, I want to... Uh, what do I got to do to come play there? He goes, oh, well. So we chatted for a bit and, and they phoned back and said, yeah, we've got uh, two projects you could be involved in. Which one do you want? Wow. I said, well, if I'm going to go to, uh, if I'm going to Stratford, I want to do Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Um, I had no idea that Stratford was, I mean, so we're recording in 2021. Uh, to mm -hmm. those of you in the future listening, when the pandemic has been eradicated and we're all just living our, our happy lives outside, hugging each other, high-fiving each other again, um, I, I didn't realize that Stratford was even happening this year. Uh, it's, it's uh, they're uh, tackling the COVID. They're going to be going basically back to the beginning of their, of their creation. So we're doing it under tents. There'll be big tents and uh, there'll be limited seating for each performance. So that's the plan they're going to try and, and bring to reality because they missed this last season, yeah. which is very, very hard on all the actors and designers and, and crew people who make that place run. So yeah. And then just people like me who just want to go to theater, not an actor. I just, but like theater is my church. Like that's where I go yeah. to work out all my feelings. So I've yeah. really, I've really missed that. Well, that is just, are you, are you able to tell us the Shakespeare play or? Uh, yeah. No, no. They, they'll announce it uh, sometime in the next month or so. And then, uh, then I can, but uh, I'll, I'll wait for them to, to break the news. But it, it's, it's fitting because yeah, it, uh, it, it, <laughs> Augie went to go see uh, King Lear at Stratford in 1964. Yeah. And that's where he was bitten by the play and said, I want to do that with all my native brothers and sisters. I want to do that play specifically. Yeah. And that happened in 1965, maybe. He saw it as a theater student in a tent in Stratford. And he said, I want to be. He saw John Colicos, great Canadian actor, was playing Lear. Mm. And uh, and he saw it like 13 times. He knew the play forwards and backwards. And and uh, and uh, then he carried that dream on until uh, 2012 when it finally came to fruition. So there was a man. Our documentary kind of follows that theme of his a man's dream that he chases and 
and he faced all the obstacles that, that he faced. Uh, his best friend, John Giuliani, was supposed to direct, direct him in Lear, and, and then, unfortunately, John passed away. And, but when we did the show, uh, John's son uh, was able to step in and, and do the music. Yeah, Alessandro music. Giuliani. So, yeah. I felt yeah. so stupid. You know, I've worked in the, in the nonprofit art sector before I, I was a journalist. So I'm very familiar with Donna Wong Giuliani as a philanthropist. Mm-hmm. I know about John Giuliani. I know there's the award named after him. And I've been a fan of Alessandro's on various shows. I had no yeah. idea that they were this power family. I felt <laughs> so stupid. I was like, ah. And I, it wasn't until yesterday when I was, I did screen the, the documentary. Um, okay. it, it was fantastic doing the documentary because uh, we got to talk with Donna and, and uh, Alessandro and, uh, and, and, uh, she would share those stories uh, along with, you know, uh, Joan and, and all her and her girls. They would sit and they go, oh, yeah, every time we'd say hi, he'd find somebody, he'd meet somebody. And then they'd sit and then they would always get back to, to Lear. Yeah. Who can we cast? When, when's it going to be done? We could do it this way. We could do it that way. And so it was a total incredible path. And I worked with Augie firstly in 1993, I think, or four, 94 and uh, we, we did a, a, a thing uh, down in South Dakota, and that's where I first actually got to hang out with him. And, and uh, we had shared some breakfast, and over breakfast, I met Joan, and we started yapping. And then he told you about Lear. Did he tell you about Lear at that breakfast? As soon, as, he, as soon as he found out I had the classical <laughs> theater training at the U of A, he said, oh, hey, I got this uh, idea. And, <laughs> and then we talked about Lear and Shakespeare and who could do what and for the next uh, hour over breakfast. And so it was, uh, and, and so that's always, so every time I saw him, we'd, we'd do the same thing. We'd chat, get caught up on family and things we're doing, and then to Lear. Yeah, Are you still want to do this? <laughs> and I go, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So I when know. I heard it, when I heard that the project was, was happening, I was like going, okay, uh, my phone's not ringing. How do I get a, so I sent my spies into the NAC to, to, uh, have, I have contacts there and I asked them, you know, if they could poke around and see what's going, what do I got to do to get an audition? That kind of stuff. They're, they're in like trench coats and hats yeah. and they're like, oh yeah, gosh, Lauren's <laughs> spies are here again. <laughs> Looking over Peter's, Peter Hinton's shoulder going, hey, what's that? is that a list of some? And then actually a friend of mine said, uh, he said, yeah, I was in, uh, talking to Peter and he's got a list and uh, I saw your name on there. You, you'll get a call. And I went, oh, okay, good. And then the call did come and Peter asked me uh, if I'd be interested in, in partaking. I went, yes. And then I said, for what part? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he said, Al- Al- Albany. So uh, it was a smaller part than I'd, than I'd hoped for. I wanted to play Kent. Mm. And uh, and that's what I said. I said um, I'm really interested in playing Kent because I think Augie and I could you know weave some magic together. And he goes, Yeah, well that's out on offer right now. And I go, Yeah. But... And then uh, then he said, But we'd also be wondering if you'd be interested in assistant directing. And I kind of went, Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Play the part, assistant direct, working with Peter Hinton and Paula Danker, geniuses. Yeah. In uh, in Shakespeare. And then and, also uh, making a documentary. Uh, well, that was my next time. pitch in the same phone call. And, and my next pitch was, oh, okay. Because I've done so many projects where there are first, you know, a first this, a first that, and it's never been recorded. So I just got to live with it in my memory mm-hmm. and others who were involved in the project. So that's when I said, you know, enough of this. Um, so I asked Peter, I said, who, uh, who have you got? Have you got somebody recording this, to, uh, either documenting it? And he goes, uh, what for? And I said, what for? And I said, 
Augie's had this dream since 1967, and he's been carrying it with him ever since. And also, there's been never uh, an all-Indigenous production on a main stage in an A house. It's always been any Indigenous uh, Shakespeare's always been in the side space or the back space, kind of like a, a sideshow, a freak show. You know, let them you know do their thing, but not on the main stage. You know, that's for real actors. You know, you get that sense from the community or, you know, let them play over here, but not on the main stage because that's, yeah. you know, so uh, so when Peter opened that, that door, it was a, a first time. So I thought it was worth documenting. And plus, you know, uh, getting Augie's uh, story, his pursuit of a dream. And, you know, he's just an inspiring, inspiring man. So uh, I, I wanted to capture that. And he said, nope, nobody. And I said, well, I guess uh, I guess I'm making a documentary because I wanted to record it, and I and then I uh, immediately hooked my uh, my wife into it, Monique. I didn't give her much, but you know I'm glad I'm a, a very intuitive, smart uh, guy, and uh, that was my smartest move was uh, getting Monique involved because without mm. her, it never would have seen the light of day. Yeah, so she's a, a brilliant uh, br- brilliant producer. And I want to talk more about uh, about the production and about Augie. Mm. A little later, because I want to get it. You mentioned Augie's story. Yeah. I want to get more into your story, Lauren, and right. do a little bit as chronologically as, as possible, but like leaving it open to just go wherever yeah. the, the conversation yeah, yeah. takes us, because that's fun. Absolutely. I want to go back in time. I want to meet you as, as a little kid. Like, what kind of a kid were you? And what, what dreams did you have about what you wanted to do when you grew up? Um, I was a, a short brown child, a little chubby. They called me, uh, some people called me Porky for a little while. <laughs> that was my nickname, my cousins. Thank you. Pork chop, oh, I think uh, they called cousins, me. Cousins, yeah, yeah. the worst. Yeah, yeah, always keeping, always keeping it real. <laughs> keep know? it real. Yeah. No, I, I had no inspirations or aspirations uh, uh, of anything when I was, I was a kid. My, uh, my dad raised uh, raised me and my brother, and uh, and he was a residential school survivor, and uh, he had uh, a lot of demons, um, and he did a lot of uh, self medication, and so there was a lot of anger and rage. But there was also he was such a brilliant man too. He's very, uh, yeah, one of the smartest political minds because he my whole family was involved in. Uh, uh, native politics back in the 60s and 70s and even my grandfather back in the 40s was, so we've always been involved in the struggle of getting indigenous rights recognized and fulfilled that's just been the main struggle so when you're when you're born brown in this country especially as an indigenous person you're political right off the bat you have no way, choice you have, you have no, no choice. choice right off the bat you're under a paternalistic society with the government saying they know know what's good for you right. and they don't allow you to make decisions or choices even on, you know, when you get to the band level where, where look, the band is supposed to look after its members, mm-hmm. but they are limited in their choices they can do without approval from the government. So if they, if they have a, a budget surplus and say, you know, uh, travel, and they say, well, you know, we can take that money and put it into childcare where we need it, and, uh, but you need the approval from the government to make a choice like that. So, you know, and that's, you know, century old. <laughs> Process. Yeah. So, um, so we've always been involved in politics. My my uh, my my dad was was brilliant in that. Uh, his strategy was just out of this world. 
And uh, my, my uncle, Harold Cardinal, was one of the most recognizable in that movement. He wrote a couple of books, The Unjust Society. He, you know, they fenced with Trudeau and, and Chrétien back in those days and mm. had run-ins with AIM. AIM was trying to move up. American Indian movement came yeah. up uh, from the States. So they, they came up here and tried to do things, but we're all like, um, no, <laughs> you no. guys are a little behind the thing. And so, um, so we've always been, uh, I've always been taught and, uh, my dad always, when we moved, we moved around a lot. So I was, we, you know, different schools every year. And, uh, and usually my, my dad would make sure that we went to the, uh, the white schools because there were mm. Indian schools specifically, uh, for native students. And, uh, he didn't want to send us there because he knew it was subpar education that they had there. And mm. he always made sure we went to the local white school in town. So my brother and I would be the only brown kids. And how were you treated as the only brown kids in the school? Well, you know, kids are rough. Kids are tough. Kids are mean. Uh, Teachers didn't help whatsoever. You know, I had uh, my first, I was five years old when I went to my first school and it was uh, up in Fort Vermilion. And uh, we lived at the end of the field uh, in this trailer and uh, we had to go to the residential school, which was just across this field. So we had to walk to and from all the time but uh, my first day in there there I was met with uh, a nun I was naturally left-handed so I got my hand smacked with rulers uh, for picking up a pencil and then they then they tied my thumb to my back pant loop to discourage me from using my left hand and then I got because they tied it so tight the circulation was quite uh, my thumb swole up a bit and so it was uh, it was like welcome to uh, welcome to school and uh yeah so when that happened uh my dad uh, because of his experience with it uh he found out cuz i came home my hand was all swollen and and he going what what happened i told him and he, he got really mad and next day he marched into the school and grabbed the head priest by the collar and shook him around a bit and said if you ever touch my kids again i will beat the living poop out of you and, but he uh, didn't so say poop. <laughs> he didn't say poop. He's not that. Um, but wow. uh, yeah, the next day I was able to, you know, I picked up a pencil and, and nothing happened with my left hand. So, you know, those kind of things he wouldn't stand up for. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, and then, yeah, and then, yeah, and then, the you know, growing up and uh, things would be okay for a while and then something would happen and he would uh, go off the deep end for a while and we'd be... Yeah you know, stuck with, uh, just making do. So my, my, my aspiration was dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I get some, I hope I get some, you know, I hope there's something, you know, that's, and you just learn to live in that and stuff. So, and that didn't change until I was, uh, uh, like when I was like 13, 14, when I, hmm. when I went out and found a job. So uh, I told them I was 15, 16, just to work in a restaurant. And then I was able to get at least, you know, a, a dinner out of the deal and uh, do my busboying job and, you know, make a paycheck. And yeah, so it was, it felt good. Uh, there's one point when I made a, a paycheck in my restaurant and, and then my brother and I went out, we went out grocery shopping and we filled up the cart and we spent like 200 bucks on groceries and brought it home. We were all like, yay, we have stuff now. And yeah. So then um, once you have those, I mean, I, because, you know, from the research that I've done about you, I know that at some point you go on to be the first Indigenous student ever to receive a BFA degree in acting from, from U of A. Yeah, yeah. Like, so, so at some point, 
that 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 I'm assuming the dream forms or you have a taste of performing or or you know you see what you can you can do even politically with with acting yeah. like tell me about you know from going to the kid who's filling his you yeah. know the fridge with groceries you know to mm -hmm. being that that first indigenous student to get that BFA. That was, uh, the whole acting thing came in quite accidentally because I'd never uh, in high school I, I took drama once and I was just to meet girls and uh, and I uh, never <laughs> And, and is that, why, that is why most people who come on this podcast, they either yeah. go, go to drama class or they join a choir and it's to meet girls. Yeah. Now they're just yeah. all meeting other guys who are there to meet yeah. girls. That's it. And we're all going like, this is dumb. This is dumb. I need to wear tights. This is dumb. So you do the so, drama class. What did you think of it? You didn't mean uh, did, girls. This was dumb. I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't care for it. I didn't, it wasn't my thing because I was incredibly shy as well. So being on stage was not a comfortable place for me. I did not enjoy having the audience looking at me. I was so, uh, I had no self, uh, self-confidence. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah, that was one of the most brutal parts was, was, uh, you know, and that, followed me from grade three when I had to stand up and deliver a book report or something for the first time. And I almost fainted uh, because I was just overwhelmed with all the kids looking at me. And then my teacher helped me out by putting my head between my knees in front of the class and then walking me out the door to the nurses thing with my head between my knees. It was like, um, <laughs> that didn't help, but uh, thanks. So, uh, Teachers who make I, the worst possible decisions yeah. ever. So, so what I did before acting was I found rugby in high school, which helped me a lot, surprisingly. Mm. It helped my confidence because I was able to play in a team environment. And and, uh, and it was kind of like in, in my high school, rugby was the outsider sport. It was, full, it was filled with all the guys who didn't play football or soccer, which were the two big sports in our school. Can and, I ask uh, a question as somebody yeah. who doesn't know like anything about sports? what's rugby like because from what I remember my friends who who did play rugby it they would be get way more injured than you know the friends who played football or the friends who played soccer like yeah. it just from from the outside looking in like is it is it like the most violent of the sports played with balls like is that uh, it, it looked it looked it looks more violent than it is but always when you begin when you begin playing the game and the intensity builds up and up. You do get your knocks and nickels. You do get your black guys and stuff because you're tackling improperly. Yeah. You're tackling too high and then you'll get a straight arm in the face and or you'll get an elbow where your head shouldn't be. So it's a, a learning process. It's like and life. Then once you, yeah. <laughs> and then once you learn the basics of how to tackle and how to be tackled, the injuries drop right off. And it's only when you do it improperly that things start to go wrong or you see it, you get hit when you didn't see it coming. Then, you know, those things happen. Spring, I, I popped both my shoulders out. I've torn my ankles and uh, broke my wrist bone. But other than that, it was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I You're all taped together and stapled together, but you're fine. Yeah. So what did you get out of playing rugby then besides all I, of the yeah, injuries? A sense of uh, in this incredible community, this this uh, brotherhood that lasts until today. Even it lasts uh, like I'm still friends with uh, a few of my guys I played with back in the day when we were all young and fit, and uh, 
and and uh, it's just a bond. And whenever we travel uh, around the world, I'll, I'll be chatting with somebody, and when we find out that we have a rugby connection, it's automatic. Oh, because you then you get a sense of who this person is. Because mm. to play rugby at a high level, and I was playing at the provincial level, and I had aspirations to go play for the national team. Yeah. I was one of the first times that I wanted to do something like that, to set a goal and then attain it, trying to. And I was on the right, I was going to that path. My club I was playing with is Rathcona Druids in Edmonton. Yeah, the couple of the old boys uh, wanted to, were talking about how to get me to uh, Europe to season up, to go play in Wales, because we had a connection with the uh, Welsh. Uh, well, the founders of our club were Welsh, the Druids, hence the Druids name. So they, uh, they had connections in, in, in Wales and they wanted to send, I was, being considered to be sent there to go play for a year or two to season up a bit. And because uh, I was just, you know, six foot, 180 pounds, just skinny. <laughs> Nowadays they play and, and, and it, they're like 220 and fast as lightning and hard as, you know, it's just a whole different game from when yeah. I played. So, but what I learned from that was team, teamwork, teamwork, integrity, uh, and and your responsibility, your responsibility, my responsibility on the field, protect my teammates, go after the ball, make turnover, make things happen, tackle, uh, don't lose yards, you know, uh, keep keep driving forward when we have the ball and, and chase it down when, when we don't. So, uh, and then, and the bond, and then my confidence grew and grew. And then when I got out of uh, high school, I was, uh, I, I quit like a, about a month before graduation. <laughs> I just stopped going. I just no. lost. I was never, never the brightest student. Well, I'm not bright. I was just wasn't interested. I just didn't, I had other things in my daily life that were uh, more important, like yeah. food and rent and, and, and getting a job. I had a job in a restaurant. So sometimes I would, I would do the lunch shift as well as the dinner shift just so I could, you know, get a, get a nice paycheck at the end of the month. Yeah. And, um, but then I, I, I bumped into a, uh, uh, a summer job uh, working uh, as an intern for the Native Communication Society of Alberta. It was a new weekly newspaper that went to all Native communities in, in Alberta and in the northern parts. And we, it was, you know, it talked talk politics, get caught up on the news, and local events, rodeos, you know, ball games, uh, you know, uh, uh, banned issues in certain places. Some people are fighting the government. So we cover those. It was that kind of uh, uh, newspaper, you know, yeah. in, in the politics and the happenings in the native native country. So I, I got in as a student, a high school student, a uh, summer student, they called it. Yeah, a summer student. And, uh, and, and they taught me a little bit of everything at first. They taught me, because uh, they had a radio, a wing on the radio. So they put me in the DJ chair and taught me how to, to, to fade the, to the music and how to talk and how to which switch to hit to make make a radio little oh, show. Wow, that, that was cool. It was very cool. It was like over my head because I didn't, but I was like learning like a sponge. Yeah. And then uh, they put me out as uh, with a camera guy to go. We had to go uh, uh, cover interview somebody on some reserve somewhere. They, so they sent me in the camera guy, and I, I was his assistant slash sound man. So I had to hold the mic and the boom and stuff. So I had to do that for a bit, and it was kind of kind of cool, you know. I was yeah. And then and then they then they stuck me in the file room. I had to catalog videotapes. <laughs> it was just like oh my yeah. god, this is so boring. 
<laughs> you're like, okay, I'm learning all these things and I've yeah. learned I don't want to do that. Exactly. <laughs> and then and then weird things happened. They, the paper, the, the, the organization kind of collapsed. They lost its funding and stuff. And then there, there was a core group of like five or six people who were lifers. This is what they do. They're journalists. They're native journalists. And they've been through this. So they went off and they, uh, we formed another company. And they brought me along as their person and then they gave me a, a title that I became the darkroom technician and so they got funding to start up another paper another uh, multi it was called the Alberta Multimedia Society of Alberta mm-hmm. and it was our same thing newspaper and uh, we were going to develop a TV radio wing and uh, so we started there and they put me as a darkroom technician and I'd never developed film in my life I'd never t- touched a camera and uh, they taught me that over the course of years. And I think I was there for like two, three years. And in that time, I was a darkroom technician. Then they sent me out as a photographer and then a photographer reporter. So I ended up having to cover ball tournaments and rodeos and, and take pictures. And, and then that's when I found my love of photography. Yeah, I, I was uh, learning how to compose pictures and take good pictures and, and, uh, and I started doing that. I started taking some great, great photos that were used in the paper in the front. I got a couple of front pages out of the deal. And, uh, and what's that looked- doing to you then? You know, because you mentioned as a kid, like you weren't dreaming. You were, you yeah. were dreaming about dinner. You're surviving. Yeah. You weren't thinking yeah. about, you know. And so now you are, you're learning. You're, you're like a sponge. You're learning what you like, what you don't like. No one likes filing VHS yeah. tapes in a room. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so, and so what does this do then for, for you? Like, are you looking at your future at that point? You know, you're still, you're still pretty much a kid, you know, and yeah. you're like, what, what are you I was thinking? Eight, I was 18. I was 18 working with these adult journalists learning, you know, about the world and how, and, and learning about how it affects native people in this country and in the world, how the, you know, colonial mentality still exists and how we're trying to fight and change it and all these, and lots of different people doing the same thing, trying to raise awareness, raise awareness within our own within our, with our own people to go, Hey, we, we, this is what's happening to us. We're being colonized. We have a colonized mentality where there's a ceiling that's been placed there and, 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 uh, we can go through it. We don't have to be afraid to go through it because usually we always get a pushback or, you know, get, um, a whole litany of, of why we can't do it, yeah. why we're not good enough to do it. We don't get it. You know, that was the prevalent mentality in all the, post-secondary institutions. I talked to, you know, in our documentary, we talked to Jenny Lausanne, who's a brilliant mm-hmm. theater artist. And uh, <laughs> she was saying how, how when she was in the university learning theater, that she was told that indigenous people can't do Shakespeare because they don't have the emotional debt, which is, but that was the prevalent, that's the prevalent mentality. So I'm, it broadened my mind, my knowledge, and then plus my family history comes in. So it just added to that history going, okay, now I know where I, I am as a person in the world. And all I wanted to do was play rugby. And then I heard that you can play rep rugby, which means that you got to get really, really good. And then the scouts will come and they'll see you and go, hey, we wanted this guy to try out for the provincial team. So those little goals, and then I started hitting these goals that I set, and I just yeah. thought, oh, I can do things. I can do things. It just gave me incredible confidence. I'd walk into a room, and people would look. They'd turn their heads, and they'd go, oh, wow. And it's because I just had confidence in myself. It was just something that started building. I wasn't aware of it, but it was just there. And then I was able to converse with journalists about 
and talk politics and ideas and different things because of what I've learned over the years and this job. So it gave me more confidence that I can, you know, uh, speak with people and, and express my ideas. And then, um, so photography is another thing that helps me in what I do now is all these skills, rugby and, and photography, they, I use them all in, when I'm directing either, you know, film or TV or on the stage. I use all these skills to uh, uh, make, make art because, yeah. you know, you use yourself. And, and uh, so after, after, after that, there was a political shift and, uh, and, and then uh, a bunch of us got ousted because the paper was going in a direction we didn't like. And there was a core group of us saying, hey, we don't like it. So they, the board quietly didn't fire us. They dissolved our positions. So all of a sudden, they didn't exist and they didn't need us. But they hired a whole new group of people to do the exact same job with different titles. So it was just like, that's a very lawyerly move. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, but, that uh, is, yeah, so, that's cold. <laughs> yeah. And, and then in my photography, I was, I was loving it so much. I just wanted to, uh, I started thinking about being like a, 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 an overseas correspondent type dude, you know, shooting for National Geographic's or routers and, you know, trying to work as a, as a photographer, as a news photographer specifically. Were you and, thinking uh, then, I mean, as far as being a, a photographer, you know, like that, that your work would be political, you know, that it would have to be political. Cause you mentioned, like you said that, you know, mm -hmm. you're as a, as a Brown person in this country, especially as, as an indigenous one, mm -hmm. your, your existence is, is political, you know? Mm -hmm. So were you thinking then that any work that you would do would have to be, you know, what, would be able to be used in, in politics would be about, you know, um, dismantling white supremacy and elevating and amplifying indigenous people or, you know, what use, cause I, cause I, I mean, we're going to jump forward in time, but you've kind of done that with the work that you do as an actor, you know, <laughs> yeah. and as a director, but you know, when you're, when you were as a photographer at that point, you know, were you thinking about that as well? No, as a photographer, I was thinking more along a humanist. I was more of a humanist. I was more interested in in in, in capturing the the a human expression, a human emotion. Yeah. So, and I, I I know the when you get into uh, areas that are in turmoil, there's it's it's all over the place. Yeah. And just how you compose a picture to tell the story—that's what was uh, the most intriguing to me. And if it helped amplify a certain uh, situation, then that would be even better, but uh, just capturing, uh, uh, and that's why I like the long lens. I used the long lens when I went covered these things because that way I can catch people um, in their moment can of whatever. You an, I mean, I know that we're an audio podcast, but can you give yeah. an example, describe a moment where you used your lens to capture the humanism, you know, the, the yeah. humanity of somebody yeah. in crisis? There, there was, I went to a conference in Jasper and it was a, a conference, the, the local, uh, the local band there were, were having a tiff with parks and parks and uh, forestry mm -hmm. over hunting rights uh, uh, because the, the indigenous people in their treaty had had hunting, they could hunt all season long. Yeah. And, uh, and the park ranger people were cracking down on indigenous hunters and, and saying, you can't do this. And, and, and I would happen to be at the conference and, and I was getting, working my way to the front, be across from where the main speakers are sitting at a table expressing just as this 
the oldest woman I've seen come up and sit down into the mic and start talking in, in her broken English about what she remembers she was told of her treaty rights by her dad, who was one of the signatories of the treaty. Mm. So this is like firsthand information. And, and she got very passionate. And I was just, I was, you know, mesmerized by listening to her. And then I went, oh, I got to take pictures, right? Because she was just so compelling, right? So I started taking this, these pictures and it was, uh, I didn't want to use a flash because I didn't want to distract her because I was right in front of her. So I, I set up and, and I just used uh, like a high speed film and a long lens and I just framed her up just as she was talking about the point of how, how if, if a fish and wildlife officer came and was going to grab her moose, she would have to. And then she put up her hand and made this fist and she was really sitting really tall and said, and she, then they would have to, drag me away from them and I'd give them one of these and she just had this fist in the air and I captured it and that was the first front page and people looked at it and went wow you could see you could feel it yeah yeah, yeah. And, and I just kind of went yeah that's what I want to do and then I was sent to uh, and, and then you keep your, you have to be and it's the same thing with theater and acting in general is you have to keep yourself when you're working you have to keep yourself open to be able to accept other offers mm. from the universe and from your partner, from your scene partners. So you're not closed down. This is what I want to do. I just want to be angry and mad. I'm just waiting for my, my cue to jump in the mat. You have to be open enough to say, well, if they come in, if your scene partner offers you something different that you're not expecting, you have to react to that. Cause if you ignore it, you're, you're ignoring a gift, an offer which is not good, right? Mm. So I was sent this one time, and this is the first time I learned this. I was sent one time to go cover uh, a, a tragic car accident in Alberta where seven people were killed in one car accident. Oh. Yeah, it was, to, and, and they were all from the same reserve. So five of them were from the same reserve. Oh, and, no. uh, and so I, and it was a huge community uh, loss. And uh, I went to go cover it and, uh, and I went, I uh, happened to be as they were at the, the grave site. So I went to the grave site and I saw them burying one of them. And I used my long lens and I just got pictures from a distance. And I got this beautiful picture of this woman in a black shawl holding this wreath. And she just looked right at me. She saw me and then she just looked at me and just tears were down her face. And I just slowly lowered my camera and just acknowledged her and said, okay, you know, I won't, I'm not going to, but I got one, one nice picture out of that. And then I went to the, uh, the uh, they were having a wake kind of in the school gym. And then I saw all these other non-indigenous photographers clamoring to the front, fighting over each other, get pictures of the coffins and the grieving family, like right in their faces and in their space. And, you know, and, and I just kind of went, I can't be this kind of journalist. I can't be that kind. I cannot disrespect the subject that that way to get a, a picture for a newspaper so it kind of made gave me doubt but then i was still there working i still had a job to do so i kind of yeah. went oh, what am i gonna what am i gonna do so i said oh, I, i'll go i'll find out where the accident actually happened and i'll drive there and see if i can capture something on the spot so i went there and i saw and there was still a little bit of wreckage on the on the road and it was at the crest of the hill so i i took a picture from the crest of the hill to see the road because the road was very hilly and where the two vehicles met were at was at the crest of the hill 
so mm. they couldn't see each other. And they were both traveling. Wait, were you in the road taking a picture? I, I took a picture on the road where the, where the, where the accident happened. I, all of a so sudden, I, I was scared that you, this doesn't end with you getting hit by a car. No, no, right? no. <laughs> no, what, what ha- I was taking that, I was trying to get that, that, I had my camera framed up to see the, the, the crest of the hill and then the hilliness of the road below. And, and so people would get an idea. It was kind of empty frame. So not, well, not very interesting at all, right? But at least I got it. And then I had yeah. took some picture of some wreckage and the blood stain in the snow and, you know, try to oh. make a story out of that with my camera. And then this car, this car comes creeping up the road and I was kind of like, oh, who's this? So I waited for it to pass, but it pulled over behind me and this guy got out, this white creepy looking guy. And I was just kind of like, what's going on here? And I was like, my radar was going off. It was going like, okay, <laughs> what can I hit him with? My first thing, right? Yes. <laughs> what can I hit him with? Um, and then I, and he comes up and I told him, I said, and he says, uh, I told him who I was with and taking pictures. He goes, oh yeah. And I said, and who are you? And he goes, I'm the, I'm the Reverend so-and-so and I've been asked by the family to do a blessing on the site. Mm-hmm. And I went, would you mind if I took a picture of you? Doing it? He goes, no, no, that's fine. And so I got this picture of this priest on the exact same spot where the accident happened with all the hills below doing, doing a blessing on the site. Again, it was another front page because it was just, it was a, it was a very powerful image because the headline is seven die and then the priest doing the blessing on the road and you could see the blood in the snow and stuff. And it was, uh, it was gruesome, but, but that was the thing about gifts being given to you. If you're yeah. open, you know, I was like something and something happened and, and, and I was able to use that gift to do, to tell a tell a story of these, to tell a story people. in in and with their humanity intact yeah. of you yeah. know of a way that um, when it's merely you know white settler journalists you're they're yeah. not going to look at it. I'm I am heartened in a lot of ways by how more diverse voices we're having in media right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have such a such a long way to go. I mean, my gosh, the two newspapers that I had a column for, um, the West Ender and the Vancouver Courier, I was the only person of color who was mm-hmm. writing for them at all. I mean, and, you know, there were, there were no uh, yeah. Indigenous people, you know, to my knowledge. And I, I know that, you know, the ind- Indigenous journalists that I really respect are often getting, you know, burnt out. Um, and yeah. then Indigenous people who end up being in stories get burnt out because the people who are, I mean, you talk about those photographers, you know, taking photos, like the people, you know, white people, that, or I mean, even, you know, non-Indigenous people, yeah. you know, uh, like aren't, don't, don't know about trauma-informed, don't prioritize trauma-informed yeah. interviewing. And, and it's like, it's all about getting the story, you know, and I just, um, do, do you, th- my gosh, we haven't even talked about you going into acting yet, but I don't even yeah. care. I love where this yeah, is. Yeah. Uh, but but do you, do you see changes then? I mean, even as somebody, you know, you were in the, that media realm for a long time. Mm-hmm. Do you see changes in how stories are covered um, and in how, you know, Indigenous people are, you know, how, are able to hold on to or, or you know, given humanity through the lens of the media? You know, I think it, it, it is. It, it's changed quite a bit. There is more presence there for sure. But I remember the first time when we all celebrated when we saw Carla Robinson anchoring a CBC newscast. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, yay, yay. And, 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 you know, I talked to her now and she goes, oh, yeah, there was a struggle every day for her yeah. to not be used as a token yeah. as well, which is what 
you know, a lot of, a lot of companies and media, especially media companies do, they do tokenism. Yeah. They put a person of color in there, but they don't change the policies behind them. So yeah. it's just, you know, forcing them to tell stories they don't want to tell because they're not accurate. Yeah. And, and it becomes and a hostile workplace for that one it, it, token it person. Yeah. Because, you know, the mentality of the rest of the staff doesn't change. You know, they still do the off color jokes and you, you're supposed to take it or you're, you're too sensitive or you're too this, you're too that. So, you know, and, and then it's, and it's, and then it becomes hard for the person to function because you're carrying all this rage with you and you've got no way to express it. You're not backed up by management. You're not backed up by the, the owners of the, the media because you know, they're they're They know how the system's set, you know, you know what they say, you know, Indian business is big business. And that's mm-hmm. a government mentality. Uh, the Department of Indian Affairs is a huge employer of non-Indigenous p- bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they say it's caring for Indigenous people across the country. It's like, you're not, because how, how come we have 63 communities that have to boil their water still to this day in the 21st still. century? Daily, they face that struggle. And yet they're being ignored by the federal government and the Department of Indian Affairs or whatever they call themselves these days. Yeah. So they're not focused on, on doing their job that they said they would do. And they're not, and they're not helping the situation. They're, they're just passing it on to the next government that comes along. And that government will go, oh, we need to trim a, we need to trim a budget. Let's you know, start here at Department of Indian Affairs. We'll start you know, trimming here. We, they don't need all this because they're not complaining. So they obviously don't need it. You know, that kind of mentality goes on and it just gets passed around. And the same problems are still there. The same issues are still there. No matter what stripe you change it to, we still don't have enough water. We still don't have enough, you know, our education is is just totally out of whack per capita. And on the national, the uh, discrepancies between uh, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people in the rest of the country is huge. And it it hasn't gotten smaller. Yeah. It's still the same. So there is a huge problem there. What role do you think art can play in? I mean, because there's so many things that art can do, right? Like, and especially mm. with, with what we face here, I almost hate to use the word reconciliation now because it be, it's became such a trendy word that the government uses, you know, yeah, but, but exactly. it, again, that's yeah. another example of a great word. And then nothing changes. Nothing's happening. Since nothing that. changes. You know, they've made all this big splash, but the, the report on murdered and missing women, indigenous women and girls in this country, huge report done volumes. They've identified exactly what the problem is. Nothing has been done since the release yeah. of it which yeah. is over going on two years, two years. And the only, the only kind of, you know, all, all of the white Canadians got upset because mm-hmm. they use the word genocide in it. Well, hello, yeah. that's exactly what's happening. Um, yeah. But, but what role can art play in decolonizing mindsets, you know, in, you know, in healing hearts and like, like it in, you know, like, you know, because the, I feel like, like art is political. I'm wondering if you feel the same way, you know, your, yeah. our presence in, in the space is it, political. It can be, yeah. it can be, it can be political, but it also can be just healing. It can also be just an expression of a human being's emotion at the time. Yeah. So it's not, and if that's, and if people see it and go, it's political, 
that's the purpose of art is to make people make a choice, be, you know, uh, become uh, interact with a piece of art or see a piece of art. And then that spurns or that inspires spurs conversation, uh, yeah. exchange of ideas. That's the purpose of art. Whether yeah. you disagree with it, I've, I've seen, uh, I've worked on the show that was inspired by another piece that the playwright disagreed with. So he went out and wrote this play, his version of that story, and mm -hmm. it won and it won a Governor General's Award. You know, hmm. so that's what art does. Yeah. If you hate it, go do it better. Then you know yeah. it's a challenge. It's and and that's inspiring. Or you know, go no, that's not the way it is. Well, then how is it? Use your voice. Tell us. Tell somebody how you, how you feel about it. Write about it. That's yeah. art. Sing about it. You know. You know. Uh, we just watched a, a thing with Maya Angelou. And she talked about anger and uh, how anger is good. There's nothing wrong with anger. It's the bitterness you have to watch out for. The bitterness is the cancer that will kill you. Yeah. But being angry is great. Being angry encourages you to use your voice, to sing about it, act it, dance it, write it. That's how you use your anger. And that's yeah. how changes happen. That, and that's the power of art, you know? Yeah. Uh, Bertolt Brecht. You know, art is, is, is not a mirror of society, but a hammer with which to shape it. You know, th those are the ideas. Oh, that, I love that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the power th that it can have. And it yeah. inspires. And I've seen personal experience. I did a show in Toronto, uh, and it was a beautiful play written by uh, Leonard Linklater and Patty Flather from the mm. Yukon. It was, called, uh, it was called 60 Below. And the story was... Uh, uh, you have your hero, Johnny, who is in the show, and he's this big character, loud, and everyone in the community loves him because he's so powerful and strong. And, and then his best friend uh, is with him, and then a hunting accident happens. And so Johnny is dead, and he's and left to deal with it is his sister and his best friend, and they talk about the hunting accident. But in the play, my character comes back as a, as a, he's kind of, he's a ghost. And he's kind of manipulating his best friend into forcing him to tell the truth. Because mm. everyone's putting Johnny up on this pedestal and going, he's this, he was this. But his best friend knows that it wasn't a hunting accident. Mm. His best friend was there when Johnny put a rifle to his head. Yeah. And so now the rest of the family has got to deal with Johnny's choice and all the pain that you saw in the community. Yeah. that Johnny caused, his being dead caused, right? So I did it in Toronto, and I was just, you know, young, you know, fresh out of theater school. So I'm, I'm, I'm in Toronto doing one of my first shows and hoping for the great reviews and people going, this is a stellar actor. And, and, um, and we got panned by the press because it was too dark. It was too depressive. Why, why couldn't they put a little humor into the piece? A little humor would have helped. A, a lot and, and just going like and that made me mad mm -hmm. and uh and and then also not getting my ego right my ego was like oh and you didn't get you didn't get a notice you know your name was mentioned once as playing the character that's it yeah. <laughs> and it was like oh no i was really you know really bummed out about it and we're doing an afternoon matinee and we just finished one show and we're getting changed and then come back for the evening show and in the middle and we're in the the friendship center in toronto gym so our dressing room is just this black curtain on ropes around us so that's our changing room and our green room and so we're getting ready we're getting out we're, we're yapping a little bit and uh 
And then this guy, the young indigenous guy, pops his head in. He goes, hey, guys. And we're like, oh, hey. Uh, yeah, just changing here, you know. And he goes, ah, yeah, I don't mind. Go ahead. <laughs> so he's like, hey, I just wanted to say, you know, uh, you guys are good. And we're like, well, thanks there, brother. And he's like, yeah, you know, yeah, it's a fantastic show. Yeah, really good show. We're going, oh, thanks. Thanks. Glad you liked it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, it's good. You know, that, uh, that show, that happened to me. My, uh, my best friend just killed himself last week. And I was thinking they're doing the same thing. But then uh, I just saw your show and I went, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, no, it's, uh, it's good. It's really good. And I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm just, uh, you know, but thanks for that. Thanks, guys. And then off he went. And I was just kind of, I was like, I felt so ashamed for wanting that thing, wanting that notice, that accolade, when the purpose of the point was him. The yeah. purpose of the story we're doing is him. This is the end of part one in our two-part interview with Lauren Cardinal. Look for part two in your podcast feed and find us on all the socials at YVR Screen Scene or on our homepage at www.yvrscreenscene.com. This episode was hosted and executive produced by myself, Sabrina Ferminger, and edited by Simon Ferminger. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com. <laughs>